Good morning, Ventura. We're going to start off right off the bat reading the text here. Um, open up, if you will, in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Or if you would rather to follow along on the slides, I do have the text on the slides behind me for your reference. Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 8, and it says, Write to the angel of the church in Smyrna, thus says the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life. I know your affliction and poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but you are but are a synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will experience affliction for ten days. Be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. And the one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. Well, if you're new here this morning, we welcome you to our study through um, the end times or the church in the end times regarding specifically the seven churches in the book of Revelation. Um, we welcome you. We're thankful that you could be here um, today. We're specifically looking at the book or the letter to Smyrna. Uh, Pastor Timothy is um, spending some time away, so please keep him in your prayers, him and his family, that they would get good rest and time during, uh, rest during this time. My name is David Pollard. I'm the youth and children's pastor here at Ventura, and I get the opportunity to bring this message to you. I'm excited about it, and yet at the same time, it's very convicting. It's hard, and I hope that all of us can be encouraged as we go through this letter and see what the Lord has to say in his word. First of all, I want to go through just kind of a backdrop and a setting for us regarding Smyrna. Where is Smyrna? What is Smyrna? How, it seems like this is the one area in the scriptures it's talked about. And so would like to introduce it to you in just a quick, brief um, uh, overview Smyrna is actually still in existence today. It's called uh, Izmir in Turkey, modern-day Izmir. It's a beautiful city located on the western coast of Turkey. Um, it actually was relocated by the Greeks during the time of Alexander the Great. When the empire started to increase and grow, Alexander took the small community of Smyrna and placed it here on the, on the coastline and it became a thriving metropolis even for the day when this letter is written in Revelation. So it's only about 60 miles away from Ephesus. So while we also heard of the, um, the letter to the Ephesians last week, it's only about 60 miles away or so to this city of Smyrna. One thing to note about Smyrna is that it's a very Roman city. And I, I mean that by saying that they're very loyal to Caesar. Smyrna's interesting. It wasn't a city that was conquered by the Roman Empire that subjugated it and wanted their loyalty. No, Smyrna was in, in some ways given to the Roman Empire. Smyrna prized itself in showing loyalty to Caesar 
and being a part of the Roman traditions, even hosting many of the Roman games. They had a prized arena there in Smyrna. And so it was, it was actually very common for Roman officials, dignitaries to go to Smyrna to spend some time or even traveling through into uh, the Middle, Middle East because Smyrna was such a popular place with the paved roads, the beautiful port, that it was the stopping point for a lot of high officials. Just its beauty was amazing. But there's one thing that I want to bring your attention to that's going to cause us to understand a little bit more about why the Christians, this small church in Smyrna, would struggle. The Roman Empire was interesting with regards to religion. They had legal charters that actually allowed for various religions to coexist with their view of Caesar being Lord. Obviously, the Roman Empire viewed um, Caesar as not just a man, but almost a deity. Caesar himself viewed himself as deity. And so the Roman Empire involved itself in much of what would be called the cult practices of emperor worship. It's really not a new thing. If you think about it, Pharaoh in Egypt did the same thing, viewing himself as deity and as man. You even think about going through the millennia of the Old Testament and seeing many of the Persian uh, um, uh, emperors, and you would even think of Nebuchadnezzar who thought to himself, is this not Babylon that I have built? These men had made, put themselves in such positions of power, had victory through military might, had possessions beyond imagine, imagination that they really viewed themselves as deity. Caesar's not exempt. As a matter of fact, it was part of the legal system that you would have to declare Caesar is Lord. Start to see that becoming a problem for the Christians, right? Who were in Smyrna. Other, other religions that were older religions were exempt from that. It's very fascinating. When Rome looked at other religions, they, they would make allowances for them to be exempt from that because they valued what was older tradition. So you could think of the Babylonian and Persian deities. Caesar, it was not a problem in the Roman charters. You can think of Greek mythology, or you can even think of Judaism, which at this time is an old religion. It's been around for a long time. So people who would claim those religions were exempt in many ways. But what happens when a Christian comes along? Why is this a problem in the Roman Empire? For first, first of all, Christianity looks like a new thing. It's brand new. It's rising up. This is this man in Jerusalem who called himself the king of the Jews, and it's spreading like wildfire, and it's a new thing. So it wasn't really valued by the Roman charters to see that as a, that's a really legitimate religion. It didn't count. Not only that, but what does Christianity do? It, it, Christianity is monotheistic, one mono-god theistic. With all of the other religions in the day, the majority of them were polytheistic, the worship of many gods. So for them to go to the pantheon and worship many gods and then along the side to say, Caesar's Lord, wasn't a problem for them, but it would be a problem for the Christians. To say Caesar is Lord would necessarily mean they were denouncing Christ as the supreme Lord, and Christians could not do that, and so you see the problem for the people, the Christians in Smyrna. Well, we're going to take a quick look at a glance real fast through 
this letter. So I just want to point out three things, and you can, you can just immediately see this by looking at your Bibles. This church, the Smyrna in Smyrna, receives the shortest letter of the seven churches. It's not a big deal, but I mean, you can just see that right off the bat. It is the shortest letter. But I don't want us to assume, therefore, this letter doesn't bear weight. That this letter was simply a quick encouragement and moving on to the other churches. I will argue, this letter is extremely weighty and has immense impact and importance for the people of Smyrna and for you and me as we read it today. Secondly, you're going to note that this church is one of only two that does not receive criticism from the author. There's no negatives about this church. The other church we're going to learn about a little later is Philadelphia. We see the church of Smyrna and the church of Philadelphia. The author has nothing negative to say to them. As a matter of fact, it seems to encourage them and give them comfort and words of affirmation. Bear, bearing attention to that uh, because that's going to be important as we look into the life of this church. It's going to lead us to ask ourselves, this church, whatever it is doing, is commended by the author. What are they doing? What can we learn from them as the people of Ventura Baptist Church here? So let's go ahead and just take this letter piece by piece. It's not a very long letter, but this is going to be the sermon, and I hope that we can glean from it the valuable truths that are meant for Smyrna and for us as well. Begins right to the angel of the church in Smyrna. A lot of commentaries can have dialogue over who, who is this angel? And some of the commentaries will say, well, it, it could be a spiritual being that was maybe a guardian, a, a spiritual guardian angel over the church. You'll note that all the other churches have the same beginning, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, to the angel of the church in Smyrna. And this understanding is, is, who, who, is who is this angel? Could it simply be an angel in the heavens looking over it, or could it also just be the messenger? Oftentimes, angels were messengers for the Lord to the people. A correct understanding here is that angel simply bears the meaning, the one who is delivering the message. Most of the commentators actually find common ground and agreement that this is more than probably addressing the bishop or the pastor of the church that was there, who would be the one that would open up the letter and read it, deliver it to the congregation. So and a better way to, to see it would be the, right to the pastor or to the bishop of the church in Smyrna. And this is the title that is given regarding the author. Who's writing this? Thus says the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life. When we read this, immediately our mind should go to Christ. This, the, there can be no other author here. This is clearly the Lord himself. And these words are very familiar to us. If we have read Revelation 1, just one chapter earlier, the Lord is talking to John, and John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. When we think about God, 
you have to bear in mind the Trinity and each person of the Trinity has their role. They cannot trade roles. God the Father, in his role, cannot come and die and rise again. That was the role specifically reserved for the Son. The Spirit could not replace the Son's duties. So you have each person of the Trinity operating exactly as their role is meant, and they cannot cross one another. Therefore, when it says Jesus, or when it says, I'm the one who died and was raised, it can be no question. This is talking about Jesus, the second person in the Trinity. And how cool for them, even hearing that, it's Jesus, the one who is the groom for the bride, the one who is intimately in love with his church, who cares for it, who knows it. This is Jesus writing his letter, his love letter to his church. And he wants them to hear his words. The church of Smyrna is going through hard times. They're struggling. They're seeing tribulation and turbulent winds on the rise. And what does Jesus write to them? I know your affliction. I know your slander. Just stop and think about that. God in the heavens knows what they're going through. This is truly an affectionate, tender, loving, and, and such a careful Christ and Savior who knows his church intimately. He gives them words of comfort to let them know, I am present with you. When you feel something, I feel it too. Jesus resonates with the hurt you experience as if it was happening to himself. Isn't that what Saul says? I'm sorry, that's, isn't that what God says regarding Saul when Saul is persecuting the church? He's going around, he's throwing them in prison, some of them are dying, and Jesus comes to Saul and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I feel that. It hurts. Stop troubling my people. Stop inflicting pain on me. I think these words are extremely encouraging. Because one of the first questions I ask myself when I'm going through a trial and tribulation, and maybe you can relate with me, is, God, don't you know? Don't you see what I'm going through? This, this hurts. And there's, there's times in our minds where we ask the Lord if he's even present. Doesn't he know what we're going through? Some of you out here have gone through trials, tribulations. Some of you are in them right now. And the first question that can come to our minds is, don't you know? And Jesus tells the church of Samaria, I know. I feel it. I understand what you're going through. Jesus does not delight in our pain. It, it is a false assumption to think that Jesus loves to hurt his children and bring suffering upon us. No, that's not true. Jesus loves the fruit that comes from our suffering and pain. You see, Jesus, who knows suffering and pain to the utmost level, is calling us to follow him, to follow him, cling to him through the suffering and pain because he knows what it's going to bring in the end. It's going to refine us through the fire and bring out treasured possessions, gold 
Jesus resonates with the hurt you experienced as if it's happening to himself. This is hard. I, I don't think any of us in here want suffering. I don't think the church in Smyrna wanted suffering. But there's something that goes hand in hand with being a Christian and what God calls us to. And God does not call us to a life of ease, cozy, cushy lives where we can be comfortable in this world. God calls us to live a life by taking up our cross and following him. Suffering is a big part of the Christian life. And so many times, we as Christians are trying to remove suffering from our lives. We're trying to get rid of pain. We're trying to get rid of hurt because it doesn't feel good. And yet that's precisely what God is using to draw us closer to himself. This is a very difficult pill to swallow. But we must recognize that the suffering is building for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He is doing something good. Regarding suffering, it literally is, is one of the biggest parts of the Christian life. If we are considering following Christ, becoming a Christian, we have to weigh the cost of what it means to take up the cross and follow him. You can't miss that part. It's literally the greatest cost when counting the cost to follow Jesus. It would be like considering the cost to build a brick building, but not thinking about the bricks. To put it in our terms, you have to recognize, and I have to recognize, suffering is a very real part of our lives. How do we deal with it? How do we go through it? Lord, help us. And Jesus tells them what they need to be able to endure suffering and trials. Before we get there, he says, I know your affliction and poverty, but you are rich. Jesus, the one who knows what they're going through, he understands the pains, but then he makes this declaration, but you are rich. This is perhaps one of the most confusing realities, not only to the believer, but to the world. They, they look at the church of Smyrna and they say, that place doesn't have power, it doesn't have wealth, it doesn't have material possessions, it's basically worthless. You guys are suffering and dying for your faith. This is worthless. Why would you do that? That's why in Corinthians, Paul says the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It doesn't make sense to them, right? Why would you suffer for such poverty? But Jesus looks at them and says, but you are rich. How, how is it that the God of creation can marvel at their wealth when you and I look at them and say, they don't have much at all? A little bit later, we're going to hear from uh, the letter to um, Laodicea. And they actually boast about being rich and having wealth. And look at what Jesus has to say to them. In Revelation 3, just a chapter away, for you say, I'm rich. I have become wealthy and need nothing. And you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus just turned it upside down. 
to the one church that thought they had wealth, Jesus says, you are poor and blind and naked. You've totally missed it. And to the church that has nothing, Jesus says, look how wealthy you are. And by the way, let me clarify here. It's not to say that poor people who have nothing are in receiving the blessings of Christ. It's that those who are poor in spirit, who do, who do not have anything to cling to in this world, but recognize, I need Jesus. I have nothing of myself, no power in myself, no riches, no good, no value outside of Christ. But in Christ, I have everything. We are the wealthiest people on the planet because Christ dwells in you. Remove him, you're nothing. And the people of Smyrna understood that. And Jesus says, you are wealthy. You are wealthy. Ventura, I have to stop here for just a moment. Are we poor in spirit? It's easy to look at it and read it in the scriptures, but I want to put yourself in their shoes. Where are we? Do you need Jesus Christ? Or are you okay comfortably coasting where you are now? Do you recognize that Jesus has to be everything for me? Without him, I am nothing. Do you recognize how poor you are without him? Remind yourself of that. It's important. Here's something to, here's something to know. The light begins to fade if we do not remember how poor we are without Christ. What I'm saying, the light, I'm talking about that burning fire, that passion for the Lord, that intimate love for him that I need him for every part of my life. Listen, all of us have different stories in here, right? Some of you came to know the Lord at a young age. You've grown up possibly in a Christian home. The truths have been poured out. You've received blessing upon blessing your whole life. And you are here today and thankful for how God has moved and worked in your heart to bring you here. But others of you, your story's not like that. It's a little different. Maybe the Lord brought you to salvation at a later date in time. And you were overwhelmed by the grace of the Lord. The floodgates opened up on you and you recognized how much you needed him and how, how poor you were without him. And so that passion is, is very real to you. But whether you have known Christ your whole life or whether you've come to know him later, we must remind ourselves of what we are without him. If you try to blot it out with whiteout and try to forget former sins and former life and try to push it under the bed, you don't want to think about how bad you were. You don't want to think about how much sin is in your life and you just want to fully embrace Christ and not think about how poor you are without him. That passion is going to dim. This is a very practical analogy. This is why we do prayer of confession and lament every single Sunday morning in our liturgy. You understand why? It's not that we want to remain in our sins and guilt and feel bad about ourselves. It's that we want to remember how poor we are without him so that we can praise him all the more that we are here to stand in his grace. Reminding ourselves of what Jesus has done keeps the fire burning and the passion in our hearts. 
to love him. You will not experience the wealth that Jesus offers unless you understand the poverty of who you are. Are you rich in Christ? Do you know what he has saved you from? Are you reminding yourself of how needy you are of him? Continue to worship him and love him. Continue to cling to him. You will not love him much if you don't remember what was forgiven much. That's the point here. And Jesus looks at Smyrna and says, I know your affliction. You look like you're poor, but you are rich. James 2.5 says, Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? The answer to that is yes. Yes, he did. So, where we are now, how we are thinking of our life placed in the Lord, remember who you once were, remember what Jesus has done for you, and let the fire burn bright in your hearts. Jesus goes on to say, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Wow, those are harsh words. Who is he talking about here? Who are these people? This is going to come up again in one of the letters, and we're going to talk about the synagogue of Satan again. But who are these people? Well, there are actually a community of Jewish people in Smyrna that are slandering the church of Smyrna. Slandering, they're, they're bringing false accusations against this small church with the intent to harm them. Um, in our day, we call it defamation. It's on the news. You can look it up right now. The, it's, it's the intent to defame, to bring someone down with false accusations, the intent to harm them, to destroy them. Why would these Jews do this? If you remember the book of Galatians, the book of Galatians, Paul is writing to the churches in Galatia, and he's telling them to not embrace the teachings of the circumcision party. This would be a group of Jewish people that believed Jesus died and rose again. He was the Messiah, but they wanted, they wanted the, the Gentile believers to circumcise and follow the law of Moses before they could truly be included into the family of God. Paul says, no, no, don't, that's not right. Faith, faith in Christ is salvation. Obviously, you keep, you, you, um, you work righteousness after faith, but it is faith alone in Christ for salvation. That is what saves. And Paul makes that very clear in the Galatians. And so it's, it might be similar to this situation in Smyrna, which wouldn't be very far from Galatia, that there were Judaizers there, the circumcision party that were trying to make the Gentiles convert by being circumcised and following the law of Moses. But something here says not. This actually seems more like Jews who rejected that Jesus was the Messiah. This is what we know today as the, the Judaism, the belief of the Jews. They're still practicing the Old Testament law. They hold to the Pentateuch, but they do not believe Jesus was the Son of God who came. They do not accept him as the Messiah, okay? And so for these, this group of Jews to be present in Smyrna, they're slandering the church. They're defaming them, the intent to bring them down, because this church of Smyrna, whether there were some Jews in there, I, I don't know, but it would probably seem to be mostly Gentile. 
These people were claiming Jesus was the Lord. It's not a new thing. Jesus talked to the Pharisees the same way. When Jesus told them, you are of your father the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus himself rebuked the Pharisees numerous times because they did not accept him as the Messiah. But he goes on even further to say, you're children of the devil. If you have rejected the Messiah, then you literally are children of the devil. You're trying to bring down my gospel, and you're trying to bring down my church. John also states in 1 John 3 in his, in his epistle, this is how God's children and the devil's children become obvious. Whoever does not do what is right is not of God, especially the one who does not love his brother or his sister. Hey, if these Jews truly love the Lord, they're not going to slander and bring down fellow brothers and sisters, right? Something is pointing here that they're, they're really not accepting Christ the Messiah as their Lord. Their intent is to harm the church and bring it down. Jesus calls them a synagogue of Satan. I, I just, a, just a really quick point here. Brothers and sisters... May we take great caution when speaking about other believers. It's not a light thing to slander someone, to falsely accuse someone, to bring them down, to make them hurt. Whether we've been offended or we've been hurt, it is not following Christ to bring down other believers or to bring down Christ's church. God takes that very seriously. It is our responsibility to love God and love one another, for in doing so, the whole law is fulfilled. Even if there are hurts, we try to reconcile. We try to be quick to forgive. Remember the Lord's prayer, for if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will the Heavenly Father forgive you yours. Woe. We do not tear down, we do not slander, we do not accuse as brothers and sisters in Christ. We do not follow the great accuser who stands before the throne of God accusing the brethren day and night. That's not the father we want. The father you and I want is the father of light who has love for his children and love for his fame to go out to all the earth. And then Jesus says, to this church, don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will experience affliction for 10 days. Um, how, are we, how are they not supposed to fear? I think that's a question for all of us. We all have fears. We're all human. More than likely, the church in Smyrna was not blind to the surrounding culture. They weren't blind to the reality, hey, we're Christians. We worship the Lord, and they're telling us to worship other things. There's going to be war on the horizon. There's going to be hostility. 
I'm more than sure that the believers in Smyrna knew that. As a matter of fact, they've been probably praying for a while, Lord, please be with us. Please strengthen us. Don't you know? And the Lord responds, I know, in response to their prayers. But even if they were anticipating suffering coming, this isn't good news because he is basically confirming, yeah, suffering is coming. But don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You're going to be tempted. You're going to be tested in prison. You're going to experience affliction. It's almost as if Smyrna, can you imagine this small group of people praying, asking for the Lord to deliver them, asking for the Lord to help them so that they, they can continue with the gospel ministry? And the Lord says, but you are going to suffer, but you are. This, to this, you have been called to suffer for the name of Christ. And I will build my kingdom through you. You, Ventura, who are salt and light in the world. It's not us being concerned with self-preservation and building up our kingdoms. It's about us dying for the sake of the gospel that his kingdom might go out. It is about us wanting to worship the Lord in such a way that we do not fear suffering. We do not fear death. Beloved, this is really hard. I fear things. But I am called to remember the Lord. We fear all kinds of things, don't we? It's a natural human response to fear. If someone pulls up behind you and blows the horn of their car, you jump. It's, it's just a natural reality. We fear things. But we fear things all the time. We fear for family. We fear for career. We fear for college. We fear for politics in our nation. We fear for our children. We fear all the time. Can I tell you something, though? We weren't created to fear. Fear is a product of the fall. You understand that? Before Adam and Eve sinned, there was no fear. It was the presence of God. The presence of God was with them. The presence of God comforted them. And when we pass from this life into the next, we will again enter the zone of no fear. He will lead us by still waters. He will lay us down in green pastures. He will restore our souls. That's where we're going. Jesus is saving us out of this world and drawing us out of this world to overcome fear. That's amazing because we fear everything. All of us can relate to that. And Jesus says, do not fear. How, how, how do we not fear? The answer is given in a plethora of passages. I'm only going to share a few. Do you know that the phrase, do not fear, is one of the most repeated phrases in all of Scripture? Do not fear. Isaiah 41.10, the Lord tells the people, you've probably memorized this passage, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold on to you with my righteous right hand. Why is the Lord telling us not to fear? Because I'm right there. I'm with you. 
like you were with Adam and Eve in the garden? Yes. The only thing is that the curse is covered. The curse has clouded out the Lord so that we can't see him, but he's right there. And he's calling us into this relationship with himself. He loves us, but we're afraid of everything. And the Lord's saying, do not fear. He tells Joshua, have I not commanded you? Be strong, courageous, do not be afraid or discouraged. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Ventura, come on, that's you and me too. We're not exempt from this. God, through the person of Jesus Christ has come into the world, saved us, and sent his spirit to tabernacle himself, dwell with us. We're not embracing that reality. I don't, I, I don't, I, I'm still learning. I want to know what is it like. Jesus, through his spirit, dwells in me. I am a temple. You all are temples, and together we are being built into a temple for the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit of God. Why would you fear? I'm right here. I know what you're going through. I am with you. (laughs) I think the majority of the time, the Lord is not saving us from sins out there. He's not saving us from stuff out there. He's saving us from ourselves. He's saving us from stuff right in here that we can't clearly see him. But we're asking, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. So the main emphasis is right here in the center of this letter. Smyrna, do not fear. Be faithful to the end. I am with you. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Do not fear the affliction. Do not fear the slander. Do not fear imprisonment. And guess what? Don't even fear death. I have overcome. I am the first and the last, after all. And I am the one who died and was raised. Don't fear. This is extremely convicting, guys. We ought to live in such a way that Christ is evident in our lives, that we're bold for our faith, that we love him and we know he's going to take care of us, not necessarily self-preservation. He's going to take care of my body. No, he may not. My body may suffer, but he's going to take care of me all the way through to the end. We all have to experience death, don't we? Every one of us. Whether you're rich and set on high thrones or whether you're in poverty, all of us have to die. And death is the doorway that the believer enters into the heavenlies. That's where Jesus goes. Be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. There it is. That's the hope. I'm sure, I'm sure Smyrna is seeing the hope through watery tears in their eyes because it's not what they wanted. It's not maybe what they anticipated. But God says this is how it's going to be done. Does it have to be done that way? Yeah. Yeah. Ventura, does it have to be done that way? Yeah. We know there were tears in our Savior's eyes when he was in Gethsemane. Does it have to be done this way? 
God will be glorified through the son's suffering and death, and God will be glorified through your suffering and death. That's amazing. We shouldn't shrink back in fear, but we should cling to the Lord and recognizing he's doing something bigger than me. He's building an empire of a glorious, numerous count of the saints who have gone before us. And it is an empire of light and love and purity and holiness. And I get to play a part in that role. And Ventura, you do too. You do too. We want to get excited about this stuff, but we're also struggling with the flesh, aren't we? Struggling with fears again. Oh man, the fears. Do not fear. I am with you. What about tomorrow? What about next week? God is bigger than all of that. Listen, I don't know what you have going on this week. All of you are in different places of life. What you guys got going on Monday or Tuesday or maybe next month or maybe next year. And there are big things that we have on our mind. There are things that intimidate us, things that, that cause us worry. And God is bigger than every single one of them. There is nothing more mighty than him that stands in your way. Jesus wants your heart to love him beyond the desires for pleasures, beyond your desires for self-preservation, beyond the desires for family or for career or financial security. He wants you to love him beyond all of that so that if all of that is taken away from you, you're still rich. You're still rich because you have the Lord. Can I encourage you and even myself as I'm convicted about this to say, let go. Let go of what you think is most important in this life. Let go. Do not fear. Trust the Lord and follow him. The crown of life is a symbol of victory. Listen, this would have been very well known. It would have been prevalent in the Roman Empire. It was the victor's crown or the wreath that was given to, specifically said, the overcomer. Huh? We've heard of that in scripture. Those who overcome. It was specifically given to those who had overcome in the games. It was kind of like our modern day gold medal in the Olympics. But it was even more than that because in certain ways it deified the winner as if you are otherly. You have gone beyond Notice how Caesar himself wins, wears the crown. He's otherly, right? He, he views himself as deity and to man to say he really has overcome the world. And Jesus says, no, you haven't. I've overcome the world. Jesus overcomes the world. Jesus overcomes sin and death. You know where Caesar is right now? His bones and his flesh has been eaten away with worms. Jesus is reigning on the throne. That's the one who overcomes. Jesus is wearing the crown. And Jesus says, guys, be faithful unto death, and I will give you that crown. A crown that doesn't perish or fade away but a crown that is an everlasting joy 
in relationship with the Father. A crown that places others above yourselves. A crown that is worthy of all glory. And the king himself will give it to you. Could there be any higher honor? Could there be any higher honor? Paul says, don't you know that the runners in a stadium all race, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way to win the prize. Everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. Well, first of all, I'm so thankful that our entry into heaven isn't dependent upon me running. Because there's a lot of runners out there that would do way better than me. But the reality is, is that you are all runners for having run the race with endurance that is set before you. Follow Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith, and he's given it to you. And you run, and you suffer well. All of us suffer well for the glory of God. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, if you're young, if you're old, suffer well for the glory of God. And you will receive the prize. He will give you the crown. What are we afraid of? Ourselves. Don't be afraid. He's with you. He'll help you. What if I fail? Trust him. What if I don't make the cut? What if I don't measure up? What if I do something that makes a blunder of my life? Will I be cast out forever? Trust the Lord. Why are you worried? He's with you. If he loves you, he will never let you go. Thank you, Father. Thank you. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. You know how? Do you know how many times I prayed to ask the Lord, please, Father, keep me faithful to the end? Some of us maybe have a lot of years ahead of us, others have less years ahead of us, but whatever the case may be, we don't know the hour. And there's one thing I desire that I would be faithful to the end, that you would be faithful to the end. We're not going to be able to do it on our own. It's just the reality. You will not be able to do it on your own. You need Christ. Cling to him and you will be faithful to the end. Cling to him. Recognize your poverty without him, but your riches with him. Day by day, be overcome with a passion and a burning flame for the love of Jesus. Please don't let the gospel of Jesus Christ grow old or numb to you. Do you know what I'm saying? How easy it is to let the gospel become numb to us in our lives. If we sit down to pray at the dinner table, it can be a quick murmuring of the lips to say, Lord, thank you for dying on the cross for us and bless this food to our bodies to where it becomes lifeless. It becomes a lifeless, murmuring, mundane utterance of our lips and we don't feel Jesus died for you. 
He died for me. We're wretches. How could he do that? Because he loved us. Take time out of your week to say, I'm going to spend five to ten minutes this week, and I'm not going to pray for anything else except thank you, Father, for sending Jesus to die for me. That's it. Start there. I know the temptation to be like, Lord, please bless us here, but we need that. Please get that taken care of. Lord, do this, do this. No, stop. Take five to ten minutes out of your week to say, Lord, this time, I'm not asking for anything. I don't want anything. I just want to say thank you for dying for a wretch like me. Stop there. Pause there. Think about it. Let it burn in your heart because you and I don't deserve it. There is reserved for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not only me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. When is the Lord appearing for all of us, by the way? When is the Lord appearing for them who have loved his appearing? What is he talking about? Death. That's when the Lord appeared to Paul. That's when the Lord appeared to Peter. That's when the Lord appears to John. That's when the Lord appears to us when we finally pass from this life into the next. <gasps> he will give not only me on that day, but to all those who have loved his appearing. That's hard. I'm not, I'm not one to say I'm super excited or I love death, but it is the final door through which I must walk before I'm finally home. I can't wait for his appearing. The Christian should be so well acquainted with dying that on the day of their life is actually threatened, they would not fear. We as Christians should be dying daily. Daily. To one another, to our own appetites, to our own pleasures, to our own desires, that we might be like Paul in saying that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Beloved, continue to seek the Lord. Continue to pursue hard after him with your whole heart. Let the one who has an ear listen to what the Spirit has to say. He has done amazing things for us. I want to end really quickly with an elderly pastor who was taken into custody in 155 AD. His name was Polycarp. And when he was questioned by authorities, do you know what they asked him to do? This young, or not young, this elderly Gentile believer, they said, declare Caesar as Lord. It's true, it's what they were doing to the Christians. And Polycarp responded, 86 years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And just in case you didn't hear me, Polycarp says, hear me declare with boldness, 
I am a Christian. Proconsul repeatedly, again and again, asked him to renounce faith, to declare Caesar is Lord. They threatened to unleash him to the lions alive or he would be mauled to death. They also threatened to burn him at the stake where his flesh would be burnt. And Polycarp willingly said, I will not deny the Lord, and he died at the stake. Why do I bring up Polycarp? It is more than probable that Polycarp is the angel to the church in Smyrna. He actually was the pastor of the church at Smyrna. He died at Smyrna and was burnt at the stake. He was an apostle of John, the apostle John, the only disciple who actually lived out a long life. And Polycarp was ministering to the people at Smyrna. And more than probable, Polycarp received the letter from the Lord when he was 27 to 30 years old, sometime in that time frame. Polycarp lived it out. He loved his Savior. He didn't let death, suffering, imprisonment stand in the way. He was faithful to the end. But it wasn't because Polycarp was special, Ventura. It wasn't because Polycarp had power or abilities beyond you or you or you. It's because he knew Jesus was with him. And he clung to him every day, seeking him and serving him. Ventura, this is my charge to you. Do not fear. Be faithful to the end. The Lord is with you. Let's pray. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your kindness towards us. Teach us your word. Show us that you are near to us. Help us understand that we need you. Help us understand that we don't have to fear this world or the things in this world. That, Lord, you are present in us, your people. And I pray that as Ventura, we would suffer long for one another. That we would love you and love your people. That we would die to ourselves and lift others up. That we would not be conceited, but Lord, rather that we would seek to sacrifice for one another, not thinking of ourselves, but thinking of others and putting them in place of ourselves. Help us, Father, as a church to grow in likeness with Christ. Help us to learn from this letter to Smyrna that we can suffer long and hard and well for the glory of Christ, knowing you are with us, even if we are scared to remember we don't have to be. And we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, well, we've come to the end of this service. I hope our hearts have been brought to a place of thoughtfulness and attention. As we go our separate ways, Help. we pray that uh, each of us would be in our conversation and our thought still processing and considering what we've heard today and how that will apply to our lives as we go into our week and how we interact with one another. Now for the benediction. The Lord will protect you from all harm. He will protect your life.
The Lord will protect your coming and going, both now and forever. Amen.